Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In today's multifamily market, finding a great deal is harder than ever. Even for the super heavy value add deals many investors used to shy away from. There's so many investors chasing the same deals. Today's guest is incredibly disciplined about finding the needle in the haystack where he's been able to generate IRRs as high as the high 20s and sometimes even the low 30s. John Cohen, founder of Toro Real Estate Properties, is based on Long Island. John only does deals where there's a big problem that needs to be solved. He's looking to expand in the Midwest and the Southeast. So today we have with us a young, dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker who is just taking the world by storm and multifamily. You go to his website and it is an immense portfolio and uh, just growing leaps and bounds. And so I really wanted to talk to this guy to go, how on earth are you doing this apparently so well? And it looks like relatively fast. And so with that, I welcome John Cohen to Street Smart Success. John, how are you? Oh, I'm doing good. I uh, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you having me on, and I'm uh, excited to uh, you know answer any questions anyone has or uh, you know help any way I can. All right, good enough. Well, um, I guess for starters, I I know you're there on Long Island. I'm on the other side of the country. And did you start out in Long Island? Is that like where you were a kid, and where'd you go to college and all that stuff pre real estate? Yeah, so I was. Uh, I was actually born in the city. Uh, my parents lived in uh, Manhattan and I was born there, but they moved out of the city. Uh, you know, I, I was two years old. Uh, so I, I basically grew up and more or less was born, born, raised and still live in Long Island. Um, I grew up in uh, Roslyn Heights. I went to high school there and now I currently live in uh, Mineola with my wife, daughter, uh, my wife and daughter. I see. How far is Mineola Heights from Roslyn Heights? Um, it is about two minutes. <laughs> it's right down. Yeah. It's right down one, uh, one street, you know, my whole family, uh, everybody basically used to, at least, you know, we all live two or three miles away from each other. And then, uh, now everyone's getting a little bit older and people are leaving a little bit, but, uh, you know, we were, you know, Sunday dinners at my grandparents, my entire life growing up. And then, uh, now, you know, we're going to my mom's on, you know, one of the days on the weekend where they're coming over to us and we go to my mother-in-law or my mother-in-law comes over as well. So we're still doing the same stuff. Uh, it's one of those, you know, I, the dreams of moving to other places and living in other locations. But I tell people all the time, you know, as much as I'd like to dream of, you know, that house in Montana overlooking the mountains or something like that, I'll probably never leave here, you know, pay all the taxes, all the, all the negatives of New York. I will have that for the rest of my life, but the positives, of course, but, uh, it's just one of those things that I don't think we're ever going to shake free of, uh, you know, of where we are. Well, you know what? It's heartening to hear you talk because, quite frankly, it sounds like what you're saying is there's this uh, number one priority on family, and that's a, a value that seems to be fading away over the decades and generations. It's it's actually, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. That's something that's been ingrained in me from day one. You know, I said when I first started doing this down this path, it was, you know, why do you do it? And the answer I gave at that time and what I have written down every day is I want to be able to give to my mother and father and my brother what my mother and father gave to us when we were growing up. And the only thing that's changed is still, you know, I I heard a story of what would love to be able to give a piece of paper to my parents and say, "What, what salary do you want? Come work for me. The only thing that's changed now is, you know, obviously with a wife and daughter, you know, they've 
they've got into that dream and it's, you know, I want to provide for my daughter like my parents provided for me. And family is huge. I mean, it's everything. It's it's why I do what I did uh, or do what I do. And and it's why I probably do what I'm doing is because of, you know, the support and, and everything they've meant for me. So that's something that's very important for us. And the main reason why we're not leaving or we've got up and flee is that, you know, we're grounded here and, and that's where everyone is. So, um, but I, I agree a hundred percent, you know, family is everything. So what did your parents do or what are they doing? Yeah. So my, my dad is a uh, lawyer. So he was, uh, he's actually a CPA and a lawyer and, uh, but he practices law. He's actually general counsel for a, uh, uh, secured lending. He is 74, can't retire, doesn't want to retire, physically can retire, but just can't retire. Uh, this whole COVID stuff, my mom's ready to kill him because he's home every day and he's not one to, uh, you know, sit around doing nothing. You know, he's 74 years old. He was commuting back and forth to Jersey city for the last couple of years where, you know, working for the company he's worked for. He's just, you know, that's what he likes to do. Uh, he's extremely good at it. And then my mom, she's a sales, uh, you know, a salesperson. She's, uh, she works for a company that manufactures limousines, town cars, sprinters, uh, and their their business has changed a little bit, but she's just been in sales her entire life. So uh, they joke around. They said I got the worst features of both of them, which is you know arrogant as a lawyer like my dad and, and a salesperson like my mom. So they say you got you got the the worst of both you know the worst of both of us. But I happen to think that uh, it's helped me out pretty well. So uh, but th- that's what they've done. Uh, they were not real estate people. Uh, I did not grow up in a real estate family. That this is what they did. You know, my parents bought their house. You know, my mom still hates that I don't live down the block because she doesn't think my area is as nice as hers. But and she doesn't think that the, the prices of houses will warrant what they you know what they're going for now. But uh, if they weren't real estate people, they were just the most supportive. And, and basically anything we wanted, we had vacations. Uh, they, they, they showed us the value of the dollar by making us work for things. But we got everything and anything we wanted. And, and they did anything in their power to do that for us. So you were born in Manhattan. Are your folks, uh, are they native New Yorkers as well? They are. My dad was born in Brooklyn. Uh, my mom was born in Queens. And uh, my dad lived in the city for quite some time. And then he, my, my mom actually was a secretary at his company uh, for someone else. Uh, they started dating, ended up getting married, obviously having two kids. They moved out of the city to Long Island, but they are native New Yorkers. Uh, the only time that they did not live in New York is when my dad went to school in uh, Philadelphia and Boston. Other than that, New York has been their home. Uh, my mom's for her entire life. My dad's for basically, you know, a large majority of his life as well. So did your dad go to law school in Boston? He did. He went to uh, Boston Law and he went to Wharton for undergrad. I tell people all the time, not because he's my dad, but, you know, he's just one of those people that just it knows everything. You put him in a situation and he talks about it like, you know, he's got useless knowledge as well, like every father does. But uh, yeah, he happens to be uh, smart. I, I don't think I'm nearly as smart as him, but uh, I can pretend I am for some time. <laughs> as long as you know more than the person next to you, they don't know what you don't know. That's 100% accurate. So you're one of two. Do you have a sister or a brother? I have a younger brother. Uh, he's two years younger than me. And what does he do? So he had a, uh, it's actually funny. He was a vegan for a little bit of time, but while he was a vegan, he actually owned a butcher shop. <laughs> so talk about uh, something strange. Yeah, he went to school for restaurant and hotel management, uh, started working at a hotel, didn't like it, uh, ended up opening a butcher shop with his partner. Uh, he has sold that butcher shop. Uh, his new fiance had a deli. So now he's working in the deli. Uh, they actually own a deli together. So he's still in uh, that food space. Um, and then about last year, he started working with me on some real estate stuff on the side. So that was been, you know, that's been 
really fun to, you know, work with him. He's not, he's the complete polar opposite of me, you know, does not like to sell. I mean, he was a vegan butcher and he would convince people at the butcher shop that they should not eat meat sometimes. Like it's not, you don't want to eat it every day. I'm like, Doug, what are you doing? You're supposed to be selling these people steaks and a lot of it. And he's telling people that, you know, Hey, once or twice a week, you know, you should go vegetarian. And I'm like, are you crazy? So, uh, he's more or less the complete opposite of me, but, uh, you know, the skill set that he has is, I guess, patience with people when, you know, I've been, you know, a little bit battered in the real estate world. So I tend to honestly write people off quickly, but have a shorter fuse. Uh, you know, he's able to withstand some, uh, you know, talk to some people. People like him a lot more than me. He's a lot more personable. Uh, people like him. I'm, I'm the one that uh, you know, people could probably do without. So it's been fun to work with him for the last year. Uh, you know, part time here and there. Uh, Corona obviously stopped him coming into the office. But uh, he's still, uh, still, you know, owns a deli with his, uh, with his fiance. So you're, you're just more of like a uh, hardcore New Yorker, you know, straight down the middle, go for the jugular kind of guy. Yeah, I would say that's probably the, you know, I've never not been given that role. Uh, you know, even when I went to college or, you know, everyone there, you know, I was always the rough and tumble New Yorker. And he was always the, the nice people that people like, you know, he was the California, Hawaii kid. And I was the, you know. I was the one that, you know, rough around the edges. Sometimes I, you know, I say things that are probably aren't politically or, or you know, grammatically correct. But uh, uh, yeah, that that's a good uh, a good way to break it down. You know, I, I looked at your profile, obvious, obviously, or maybe it's not, but I, I did <laughs> in preparation for this conversation. And, it, you know, you're a young guy, man. So uh, and I, I'm like, holy cow, you've accomplished a lot. How did you get into real estate? Yeah, so it's funny. I was uh, I was in finance for uh, you know out of college. Uh, I played baseball in college, and you know I wanted to play baseball professionally. Which you know when you're five eleven, short, fat, and bald, baseball is probably the only sport you have. But you know, obviously, I'm not playing professional baseball. So I remember when I was I was driving home in the summer, and my mom actually called me and she said, you know, you know, you're 21 years old. You got to get your shit together. And I said, okay. She said, here, I cut this article out of the paper. Go interview there. So it was actually for a financial advisor. So uh, I ended up going, you know, Long Island stock bro- stockbroker route. And uh, while I was there, all the clients, the biggest objection you had was, you know, oh, I'm in real estate, I'm in real estate, I'm in real estate. So inevitably, I started going online and, and finding out, you know, what can you do in real estate? And just by reading some articles, I just fell in love with the idea of being an investor, a real estate investor. I felt like there was more control in tangible products, not necessarily stocks and bonds and stuff that was out of your control. So I just started reading and fell in love with it. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a ton of real estate experience. He owned some properties uh, that are extremely valuable today that he's left and passed down to our family, to his kids. So, you know, I saw what he was doing subliminally, not having any intention whatsoever, but it was just by hearing people talk about it, uh, that that itch started. And then, uh, I quit my job in finance and I said, I'm doing full-time real estate investing. I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. So it was just by hearing people talk about it and the curiosity bug. And that's, that's what got me going down the path. Well, so what kind of properties did your grandfather own? Were they, were they a multifamily or were they uh, office retail? So he, uh, he had a trucking company and every property they bought was really for use. It was industrial warehouse space, which inevitably has been an extremely great buy, you know, 40 years later. But uh, they bought, they had a trucking company, so they bought industrial warehouse space where they can, you know, operate out of. And then that's parlayed, you know, parlayed into, you know, they couldn't afford the city. So they were in Brooklyn and then they couldn't afford Brooklyn and then they went to Jersey and then they couldn't afford 
you know, Jersey and they went to Jersey City. So th- they just moved operationally due to not being able to necessarily afford the rent and, you know, started buying smaller properties that they can operate out of. And those properties, you know, have have uh, inevitably went into trust as my grandfather got older and the trucking company grew and my uncle runs the trucking company and those properties went into trust for him, for my mom and her three siblings. And, uh, you know, one of the properties is being sold right now. And uh, there's still a couple other properties that they own that they collect rent on to this date. Uh, and, and then after they outgrew something and they didn't sell it, they would rent it. So they would rent, you know, they rented a building to Verizon and before Verizon, it was Bell Atlantic. And then you know, they were a tenant for 35 years. So they just put really good tenants in really good locations. And uh, inevitably, I saw, you know, what he did on a day to day and then what he collected in rent. And that was a piece of it that got me, okay, I understand this. Now I'm reading books. I'm educating myself on real estate. I want to do this. I want to be an investor, a real estate guy. And uh, that, that was, uh, that's sort of how it came together. He just basically, like I said, it was sort of the, the, the backdrop to the real estate itch. In what year did you then quit the finance job and go off on your own into real estate? And what did you do? Yeah. So in 2013 is when uh, I started my first company, which was the, I was buying, I was buying some uh, taxi properties while I was still in finance. But in 2013, I created JC Property Group and then really 100% focus started probably in 2014. But between 2009, 2009, I bought a house with my brother. I was, you know, I was working. He was a junior in uh, college and we bought a house and we rented it to some kids. So that was like the first purchase. But from like 2009 to 2013, it was, I would say, passion or hobby that turned into passion that really... I would find myself in the office as a financial advisor, just going through the motions and you know making calls, not caring if someone said no. I would just hang up instead of trying to fight with people. And while I was doing that, I was you know researching stuff online and realized like, what am I doing? Why, why come into this place every day from seven in the morning to ten o'clock at night trying to raise money and and be a good financial advisor if the passion wasn't there. So in 2013 is really when it went. It really transitioned to 100% full time. Uh, full-time real estate investor. And so what was your like intended purpose? So when you did that, what was the plan? I'm going to do this. What was it? Yeah. So that's a good question. I think the intention was I have some money in the bank. I've saved up some money. I've messed around. You know, I've bought some tax deeds and uh, the intention was, I think like a lot of people, you know, the shiny object of fix and flips and stuff like that. So it was get your real estate license, get access to the MLS and then find some fix and flips. That was the intention at that point in time. The vivid moment I remember, I was working at Morgan Stanley. I quit my job the day I got hired after a nine-month interview process. I was driving home at 7.45 in the morning after quitting. It was around nine o'clock, actually. I was driving home. I called my mom. I told her to quit. She was like, you're crazy. You were 10, You were the youngest kid in the training program by 10 years. What are you? What's wrong with you? You're 23 years old. And I was like, yeah, but I hate the job. And I went home. I opened my computer. I put a bathing suit on. We don't even have a pool. I just put a bathing suit on. I opened my laptop outside sitting in a lounge chair. And I remember I said to myself, I'm a real estate investor. And the intention was to fix and flip houses. And, you know, we live in an area where there was, you know, there was decent, decent profits to be made, but quickly realized that this is going to be a little bit harder than just opening your computer and, and trying to fix and flip houses. So audible into, let me, you know, I have my real estate license. Let me buy and sell property or let me rent and sell property while I earn income. 
And then I could really focus on what I want to do. And what I wanted to do was buy tax delinquent properties because I didn't need investor dollars. I had enough of my own money. And I was on a rooftop bar in Manhattan and a kid came over to me and said, you know, do you see any properties in this list of properties? And it was a stack of paper about an inch and a half thick. And I was looking at it and I'm like, I could buy this property for 4,000. I could buy this property for 10,000. And I said, and you're making money on this? He said, yeah. I said, how? He said, well, there's there's auctions for these tax delinquent properties. And I, I was familiar with them from my readings. And, and it was a product class that was interesting. So uh, I drove to Philadelphia for the next auction and ended up just buying delinquent tax deed properties because I had enough of my own capital where I didn't have to raise money. And, and I could do that and quickly fell in love with that. I ended up acquiring about 150 properties over a couple of years. And uh, I've sold all, you know, some were fix and flips, some were, you know, rentals, some were... Uh, just assignments. And it was just a mix. So I got a really good education on a lot of stuff just by buying some delinquent tax properties. And then uh, I fell in love with multifamily when I started working as a commercial broker for Marcus and Millichap. And my manager convinced me to do multifamily investment sales instead of uh, industrial warehouse conversions. And that's when I just fell in love with multifamily. And really in 2000 late 2014, early 15 is when 100% of the focus went towards multifamily properties. It wasn't part-time multifamily tax deed. It was 100% focused on multifamily property. First of all, you said you had enough money to buy the tax delinquent properties. How much money did you start with? Um, so when I, anytime I, I was always the one that, you know, I wanted to work really hard until I was 40 to retire, not play until I was 40 and then have to work till I'm 80. So I always looked at it. Luckily enough for me, I I moved back in with my parents. Um, so I had virtually no expenses. So I looked at it as enough money to live on my own, live at my parents for two years. So I had probably roughly around 40, $50,000 of cash available to buy properties for myself. You know, I had a gentleman on a podcast a number of months ago, very nice guy and a different business. This was before I was going all real estate on these podcasts. And he was like down, he had like exited a business. He was broke. He ended up living with his dad and the dad, I guess, wasn't doing too well. He was like a wanna be entrepreneur, you know, like just one failed thing after another kind of thing. And his dad literally uh, charged him equity in the company. The guy I talked to, the guy I talked to, his dad charged him equity for in exchange for giving him a room in in his apartment. So my point is you're you're lucky your parents didn't do that to you. (laughs) Oh, no, you're hundred percent right. I, I tell people all the time, you, you, listen, I, I was, uh, if not the luckiest person in the world, it's, you know, extremely lucky because, you know, my mom would cook, she cooks dinner every night. Uh, they do the wash every night. I literally, I made my bed, but I didn't have to. I could have rolled out of bed, did my thing, and it would have been made for me to come back into. Selfish, spoiled, whatever you want to call it. I don't try and deflect that and say that, you know, I came from nothing and my parents didn't give me anything. Did my parents ever invest? No, my dad just made his first investment with us uh, the other day because uh, I, I never asked him for anything, but they put a roof over my head, a home cooked meal, and basically took a major pressure point off of my shoulders where it gave me the flexibility to mess things up and buy deals that didn't work. But because it was my own money, you know, there, there was no, I don't want to call it real risk because it was my, the only risk was myself. 
I know that I was in a situation that that literally bred the you know it fueled the it fueled the success because of the opportunity they gave me. So I, I give them you know all the credit in the world for for sticking with me because at 23 years old when I quit my job, you know my, you know, my parents are like, oh, you know, what's he gonna do, right? Because you know he's 23 years old, he's living at home, you know, uh oh. But no, without without their without their help, and you know who knows if I'm sitting here today in the position I'm in because they, you know, they gave me a, a two, three year plateau to, to basically not have to pay for living expenses, which is our, a bulk of anyone's you know, major costs. Yeah, no, I was just kidding. It just, that just, of course. Me. So were they, uh, were they how, so you said 150 properties, were they all houses? Were they duplexes? Um, mostly either vacant land, uh, vacant pieces of property, and or uh, single family row houses in Philadelphia. Uh, occasionally, you'd come across maybe a duplex uh, or a multifamily, but most of them were single family and or just you know land value. And so, were you like going to Philadelphia and staying there overnight for a, a few nights at a time, or because that's not exactly? I, I'm, I'm assuming it's a, an hour and a half, hour forty five, two hours from New York. Correct. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So what I would do is. Uh, I would wake up in the morning at around 3.34, get my car, drive to Philly, get there by six. And I would drive three, 400 properties at eight o'clock at night. Uh, I would get back in the car, drive all the way back home. And then the auction was the next day. I'd wake back up, drive all the way to Philly and then uh, stay there. Once I was able to buy some stuff and generate some income, then I started getting a hotel room for the night before the auction. But I would just the list is online. I'd print out the houses and I would drive every single property on the house. Now you couldn't go into them. You could just drive by them. Or I should say you shouldn't go. You, sh- you weren't supposed to go in. Sometimes I found myself in situations that probably shouldn't have been in, but uh, you know, curiosity, right? You knock on the door, someone answers you. Do you live here? You know, are you the owner? No, I rent this place. Okay, great. That's great to know. Cause there's rules in Philadelphia for owner occupied stuff and stuff like that. So, you know, the first time you do it, you listen to the rules explicitly. You don't deviate. Second time you do it, you start getting a little creative and then you just network and then uh, you drive there, you drive home, you go to the auction, you buy some properties. Uh, you were supposed to wait 30 days bef- and until you paid off the house before you broke it, before you got in. But uh, I had a good uh, friend who was doing this, who had a locksmith. And, and at the end of the auction, you know, six, seven o'clock at night, we would go and get a little dark out. Uh, and then I would call my locksmith. He'd meet me at the house. He'd pop open the lock and you would see what you bought. Uh, whether it was a completely burned out house, whether it was a completely renovated house and the guy just stopped paying his taxes. We had the the full mix. I, I remember knocking on doors off to the side. These were not in areas that you'd want to hang out on a Sunday afternoon. These are in rougher parts of town. So, you know, sometimes you, you, you want to be, you know, safe. But uh, yeah, most of the houses were, you know, beat up single family stuff that needed significant work and or you know, we bought them so cheap, you would sell them to, you know, rehabbers or developers that they didn't want to take the risk at the tax sale because they didn't know if they can get clear title. I, I knew I can get clear title through my, you know, the due diligence and the work I did. I knew there was a company that would insure this stuff, but it would take 60 to 90 days where a rehabber didn't want to take the risk. I would take the risk because I was buying the houses for 15 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar, and then selling it to them for 25, 30 cents on the dollar. So, I took the initial risk and then I had a good group of buyers. Once I got clear title, uh, the transactions were, you know, super simple. I see. And what were you buying them for? Uh, the cheapest property. So in Philadelphia, when I first started, you were able to actually put down 10% or 
uh, $300, whatever was more, and you were actually able to cash. Uh, then that turned into certified checks and, and then you, it was a whole process. But, you know, we would buy some properties for $800 and some properties for 20, 30 grand, just depend on size. Obviously the 20 or 30,000 didn't happen until I was significantly more seasoned and had gone through a couple of these. But I remember the first auction I went to, uh, the first auction I went to actually wasn't in Philadelphia. It was in, uh, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I said to myself, I'm just going to see how this is going to work. And you sit in a room. And they literally say, you know, property one, two, three, six, five, uh, opening bid a hundred dollars. And then you stand up and bid, 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 and it bid the price up. So I remember sitting there and the compulsive side of me was sitting there saying, I'm absolutely not buying anything. And, you know, you're sitting there for 45 minutes and you see all these people buying property for 300, 400, 5,000, not a lot of money. So they go property six, four, whatever, and, and opening bid $300. So I stand up, I go $300 and nobody stands up. And I said, uh oh. So I bought a property. I didn't even know how to find it. I had to go into the county and, and I'm walking around and the guy goes, what are you looking for? I said, how do I find this? Because they just gave you the section block and lot. So he shows me and then I go drive to the property and uh, it was a worthless piece of property that was completely valueless. And uh, that was my first property I bought. It was about 340 something bucks, give or take. And uh, I learned not to do that again, but that was just, you know, I wanted to be involved in it. And to me, getting involved was better than analysis paralysis. And then obviously I got better at it over time and, uh, you know, turned the Philadelphia thing into a decent little business. That's pretty darn amazing, man. You got started like boots on the ground and just doing it and learning it. How did you get from doing that 150 properties to, and then you worked at Marcus Millichap, you had a boss that convinced you to do apartments. What were your first investments? Well, how long were you Marcus and Millichap before you went into full-time investing? Yeah, so it was, uh, so while I started at Marcus and Millichap, I told my boss from day one that, you know, I, I was doing a couple fix and flips at the time and, and he knew I was an investor. So it was nine months maybe that, and then in, at the nine month, maybe it was a year, just about a year, I walked into his office. He said, let me guess. I said, yeah, I have enough deal flow that this is becoming a burden. Now, I never bought anything in New York, so it was never like a conflict of interest. I, you know, I wasn't trying to buy deals in New York. Everything I was buying was out of state. But I once again saved up enough money from fix and flip where I had enough money and I knew I could raise enough money to go buy my first apartment complex. So the first apartment complex I bought was at the middle of 2014. And then I think my last day at Marks and Millichap was probably early 2015 because my first my first apartment complex was a 48 unit property in Columbus, Ohio. And I knew that was just going to take a lot more time out of my day. So uh, we, you know, I purchased that with uh, my dad actually co-signed the loan. It was hundred percent recourse. I, I signed that loan with a buddy of mine who is still quasi partner and an investor in all my deals. Uh, and we bought that first deal together. Uh, with my dad's help on the loan, because I, I couldn't qualify for the loan at the time. Uh, my dad's help, my buddy's help, and I raised, uh, it was just about $600,000 to buy that first apartment complex with $800,000 in debt. I see. Wow. And and how did you find it? Uh, direct mail. So I, I was always a pound the phone, cold call, direct mail, knock on doors. I was just sending out direct mail for about six or seven months. And a property manager that I was talking to on another property was getting the letters because the owner was from South Korea and Hawaii. So he actually had a stack of letters. He was moving offices and he said, oh shit, I didn't even realize this, but I have like five letters from you. 
I know the deal you're going to buy. You're going to buy the deal that your mail's on. He introduced me to the owner. I spoke to him on the phone. He said, I'm listing the property this week. Get out there and let me know what you think. I jumped in my car on a Sunday, drove 10 hours with two friends to Columbus. I drove the entire way. I drove 10 hours there, saw the property, met with two brokers, got in my car, drove 10 hours home, called the guy up and said, I'll give you the purchase price was like one, one or one, one you know, a million fifty. Little did we know the property was in significantly worse condition, but you know, we ended up doing our due diligence and, and it worked out. It was, you know, a phenomenal deal, but uh, it was a direct mailer. Guy was just about to list and he gave me the opportunity. He said, you know, how motivated are you? And I said, getting in a car tomorrow. I will give you a call uh, Monday morning. And I did. And he said, you know, let's do it. So it was a direct mailer on how we basically obtained our first deal and, and with help from our, at that time, property manager. What a uh, fantastic story. And then did you end up, if you sold it or you still have it? So we sold it. Um, you know, we were all in for about a million four, give or take a million four fifth. We sold it for like a million nine, 18 months after we purchased it. You know, we did a, a pretty large renovation on it, uh, really added some value. That property has since sold two more times since we sold it. Uh, it sold for like 2.3 and then like 2.9. So now the whole market has done that. But our business plan, you know, we executed it and our, our whole, the whole intention going in and, and basically the philosophy that we've done is, you know, buy the property, buy a property that needs significant work, get in there, do the work, you know, and then get it on the market. Right. And, and now we've sort of changed a little bit. You know, we, we are owning longer term, more deals, but, uh, you know, we were heavy, heavy value add guys when we first started, uh, when I first started and, uh, once we achieved our business plan, the way we get the way we get paid and the way we uh, execute is by hitting performance and hurdles. So the more, the higher hurdles we hit, the faster we hit it. The better performance it does for our investors, and obviously the more money we make as individuals. So uh, that was the business plan. We, you know, we spoke about potentially refinancing and holding it, but uh, we knew that it was forty eight units. We wanted to buy bigger properties, so it was a uh, it was a stepping stone for sure, and it was an awesome learning experience. Uh, we we were able to learn a lot and make some money, which is always, uh, you know, it beats the alternative of not making money. I would uh, tend to agree with that. So uh, how did you find the property manager? What was that experience like? And and the other part of that question is, did the property manager oversee the renovation? Did they have in-house uh, construction or did they find a general contractor? How did all that work? Yep. So luckily the property we bought, uh, at, you know, the manager facilitated the introduction. He was managing it. So it actually helped. So we ended up working with him. Now we wanted to fire him about seven months in, but we didn't because the property was performing really well, but I didn't think he was doing everything hundred percent above board. And we soon found out that he wasn't because the day that we said we were going to sell magically, the property's occupancy dropped overnight from like 93 to like 80%. And he said, oh, you know, these tenants all skipped. So we said, wait a second, that makes no sense. Um, so because I worked at Marcus and Millichap, I reached out to the Marcus and Millichap brokers in the area. And I said, can you introduce me to some other managers? I'm thinking about firing my manager. They introduced us to our manager that we currently use now and who we have we scaled with. We actually brought our manager from Ohio down to Florida with us. And uh, he actually stepped in and we needed to do a parking lot because when we bought the property, we went right into winter. So we waited till after winter to do the parking lot. I met the new manager out there or the potentially new manager. And I said, this is what we want to do. We drove the property. The man, My current manager was there. I introduced him as a friend of mine. Uh, he wanted to see the property. So we toured it. And, and I said, you know, the, pl- the next capital expense for us is the parking lot, which 
our manager convinced us we didn't need to do, which you'd always do. You'd always start your renovations from the outside in so you could change the appearance of the property. Our manager convinced us that we didn't have to do that. And, and we did. But I remember my manager at the time, uh, he said, listen, I have an opening. I have a great guy that does asphalt work. I have an opening in the schedule tomorrow. Can you guys come up with a $10,000 deposit? And I said, uh, I'd have to go to the bank. I don't think so. And he literally put the deposit out of his own pocket under the promise that we were going to hire him as our manager. So, and he was building his business at the time. You know, it was his, I think I was either one, either his first or second third party hire. Uh, that I was his first uh, third party client. So he was building his business at the time. I was building mine. We knew we wanted to fire our manager. So uh, we fired him, brought our current manager in. His name is Nick Harpster with Link Real Estate. And uh, that's how that marriage started. Uh, our first manager we fired. And our first manager did have, have good relationships with contractors who we ended up hiring to do some of our work, which was the best decision we made because our manager couldn't steal money or, or take an oversight fee uh, as per our contract. So he introduced us to a group that did a phenomenal job on our first project. Um, unfortunately, the owner of that company actually passed away from cancer. But while he was still around, you know, we actually worked with him on two other projects and he was just a really good, a really good contractor. Although the manager that we had at first ended up getting fired for stealing and not doing the right thing, he did make introductions that we still have today to vendors and people that have just been, you know, very, very, very helpful to us. Yeah, man. You know, sometimes I think it's a super smart way of looking at it, you know, and connecting the dots. And uh, sometimes it's not all black and white. It's it's gray and you never know who's going to what you're going to get from whatever business association so you now are, it looks like you're a lot in the South. And so like, what was the progression, the trajectory? Yeah. So we always, uh, first property was in Columbus, uh, very opportunistic. Uh, you know, we always loved the South. Obviously the growth story there is tremendous. Uh, everyone's leaving New York and the Northeast and going to the South and everyone's leaving the West coast to go to Arizona. It's just more affordable, nicer weather. All the jobs are going down there. So we wanted to be on that trend. Those are the things we look for. We look for great job growth, great population growth, and really good supply and demand. And all signs pointed towards South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida. So we ended up acquiring a lot of deals in the Carolinas, uh, which we've since sold everything except for one property. And uh, we've been acquiring deals in Jacksonville, Florida for the last five years. And then uh, we're still acquiring properties in the Midwest. So right now we're pretty evenly balanced. We're probably about 800 units in the South and about 800 units in the Midwest. But, uh, you know, that South is that growth story. You know, it's got the population growth. It's got the job growth. And the Midwest is sort of that steady eddy, not too many highs, not too many lows. But we look for broken properties. So we don't necessarily need amazing job growth and population growth to drive our growth. We're really buying broken, broken properties that when we fix them, we've delivered the value. So, you know, whether it's poor management, poor occupancy, a lot of deferred maintenance, down units, uh, those are the things that we come in, we know we can fix, and we know once we fix them, uh, they're, they're, genera- they're income generators. And that's, that's our bread and butter. Uh, that's what we do really well. And, uh, you know, not only have we followed the growth into the South, but we've also uh, been very opportunistic on some heavy lifting, you know, value-add deals. When you say the Midwest, other markets outside of Columbus? What other markets? Yeah, so we've been in uh, Cincinnati, uh, Columbus. We've owned in uh, in Tennessee, which could be South or Midwest. We've owned in Covington, Kentucky, uh, right across the river from Cincinnati. 
We've looked in other markets like Indianapolis and Louisville. We haven't been able to buy anything. We've just been you know, a day late, a dollar short. But uh, Midwest right now is basically Columbus and Cincinnati. And uh, we're, we're always looking for you know, to expand our footprint in the Midwest. Uh, it's just been tough with, you know, with COVID, you know, put a pause on a lot of things. But uh, our bread and butter right now is in Columbus for sure. And looking to continue to grow in the Midwest while we continue to grow in the South. You know, it's really, really, really interesting. Columbus, I think, is the fastest growing. And by the way, Indianapolis is right there. Columbus is like the fastest growing city in the Midwest, which is a huge, you know, which is big and which blows me away because I'm from Ohio originally. And uh, it's just, an, you know, Ohio State and you got a lot of insurance, all the stuff that you know. And that's a trip that you bought something in Covington. And actually, I do recall seeing it on your website. And it looks like actually a super cool property. No, you you have chutzpah, my friend. So let me ask you this question. So criteria wise, value add, you know, clearly property, you know, maybe it's it's not being managed well, uh, deferred maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. But how would you describe your criteria? That's a great question. So we, we've definitely evolved and tweaked over time, but our bread and butter for sure is 1960s to 1990s product, uh, garden style or townhouse style, more two bedrooms and three bedrooms than one bedrooms. Although we do own some properties that have a lot of ones, you know, we like a good mix of two to two and three bedrooms to one bedroom. So like a two to one ratio. Um, we like pitched roofs, not flat, although we do own some flat roof properties. Uh, we like properties that are broken. So I don't like buying 98% occupied properties unless it's been owned for 10 years or more. So the the two buckets on the value add, not only the vintage, the mix of units and stuff like that, but we like to buy from long-term owners where there's clear meat on the bones operationally, or we like to buy from quote unquote slumlords or people that have might, might have messed the deal up because they've typically ran out of capital, didn't budget properly, or they've just owned it for so long that the roof is falling apart. Uh, n- the plumbing needs to be completely remediated. The, uh, the uh, aluminum wiring has to be converted. Uh, we like problems and we look for problems because that's typically where we see the most value. So our, the biggest thing on our criteria is not unit size. It's not vintage. It's not deferred maintenance. The biggest thing for us is a real story. And I tell that to brokers, to, to wholesalers, to anyone that wants to engage with us. I don't want you to bring me a deal that was bought two years ago. The guy renovated 20 units and now I can finish the renovation and get you know a, a 13% return. Like That doesn't do it for me. I want to buy a property that people don't want to look at. I want to buy a really good story. And my homework and where the deal rides its success on is the due diligence we do to uncover if the story is bullshit or the story is real. And if the story is real and there's a real problem and we can fix it, that's a deal we're going to buy 100 out of 100 times. So yes, we do like 1960s to 1990s. We do like uh, a two-to-one ratio of two bedrooms to one bedrooms. We do like uh, a lot of deferred maintenance. We do like you know no signage, no branding, no advertise, no internet present. That stuff's all good and we like it. But our bread and butter on our criteria is a really good story that would scare people away. So I was just looking at a uh, property. I'm an LP in, in Memphis, and it's a heavy value add. I think it has a lot of the 
characteristics that you're describing. And I don't know from construction, but all I can tell you is that it looked and one of one of the GPs is a construction guy, which is why one of the reasons I actually felt comfortable investing in something this heavy of a lift. But it and we were walking through units with the GC and and the the project manager from the property management company, and it just seemed like an awful lot can go wrong. It's like when you buy it, you don't know what you're getting, and so I guess going into different markets, like how do you manage against that getting the right general contractor, the right property manager? It seems like there's so much risk involved in what you're doing, which is why I have so much respect for it. Uh, yeah, I think the biggest thing is obviously, uh, you know, you can't pick up the yellow pages and find a good contract. You, you can, but more often than not, we've been able to find them through referrals, introductions from people doing similar projects in the geographical region that this contractor can cover. So have we hired contractors that haven't worked? Yes. Have we hired managers that haven't worked? Yes. Um, you got to be quick to pull the trigger when that, that sixth sense goes off. And, you know, if it smells like, you know, what tastes like, you know, what looks like, you know, what, you know, what it is. And there, there's a piece of real estate that I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what your Excel spreadsheet looks like. There's a piece of real estate that when, when you're there, you feel it. And you got to go with your gut, you know, and if it's not working, you got to make a change. And the thing that we look at is our contacts A to Z, a project doesn't go hundred percent according to plan from start to finish. There's bumps and hurdles and ups and downs, but when you have the right contacts and network and people that you can trust, that's how you fix problems quickly. So when we go into a new market, you know, we start with the building department, making sure that we're on the same page and Hey, we're looking at this opportunity. You know, how can we help you? Right? Help you help us help you. Uh, you know, who are people that are pulling a lot of permits and are executing, right? And and you start looking and and you inevitably a lot can go wrong. How we mitigate against that is, you know, it's real estate 101 or maybe 102. Uh, it's not location, location, location. That's obviously important, but it's your basis. Uh, you make your money when you buy. If you overpay, you'll struggle. Uh, you'll, you know, it might not turn out as good as you want, but if you buy a property, right, you know, you look at the comps, you look at the support, you look at what's going on in the market. If you can get what, you know, quote unquote, a market discount and you buy something, right, you could withstand blows and you could withstand kicks to the face and, and you can get knocked down a little bit because you purchased it, right? If you overpay, that's when those mistakes add up and really start to hurt. So you can have, you know, a, a mistake or a change order and you could put a contingency in and, and we understand that. And your budgets are your budgets where, you know, your, your line item for drywall might come in a little low, but your line item for plumbing might come in a little high. So, you know, you rob from Peter and pay Paul, but at the end of the day, you make your money when you buy. And when you buy something comparably at a discount, that's typically how you withstand, you know, you withstand some some tough days. And and that's what we predicate what we do. It's uh we go in with a good basis. So we know worst case scenario, if we mess this up completely, we're gonna be able to get out what we put into it because we're gonna improve the property and we're not gonna over-improve the property. So that's how we feel your your the safest way about it is to make sure that you're going in at a basis that is that you feel really good about. Yeah, you've got to have uh, just a ton, a ton, a ton of daylight uh, to account for all the stuff that could go wrong. Simple common sense. So why do you, A, like two bedrooms and why do you like specifically the ratio and, and or three 
Why specifically the ratio of two to one? Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, it costs the same amount of money to run a two bedroom as it done to run a one bedroom. Uh, when I say that, yes, your turn cost might be a little bit more because it's a little bit bigger, but your insurance is the same. Your water bills are comparable. Your property manager, your salary, that stuff is fixed. So whether you have a two bedroom or a one bedroom, that's not going to change. If the property is all two bedrooms, it doesn't cost more to run that property. It costs the same as it's all one bedrooms. The biggest difference is a two bedroom commands more income. So if you have a property of all one bedrooms, your income is X and your fee and your, your costs are Y. If you have a more two bedrooms to one bedroom, your income's higher. So your costs are the same, but you typically just have more income to pay those costs. Now, market by market is different. You know, if, you're, if your average rent is $2,000 and they're all one bedrooms, we're having a totally different conversation. But our products are typically $500 to $700 average rents where we can move them to $700 to $900 average rents or maybe $1,000 rents. So we're operating in a C and a B class space. So a two bedroom and a three bedroom just commands more money for the same operating costs of a one bedroom. So we just like a little bit of a larger ratio. We just we just feel better about that. It doesn't like I said, it doesn't mean we won't go the other way. We, you know, it's just gotta the deal has to make sense for us to to change our, you know, to change our minds on that. So do you, John, in in the heavy value add stuff where it's gotta be real problems, the story has to be legit, like this is really messed up and we could fix it. What is the competition, you know, to buying that kind of property compared to if you're going to go out and buy something like a B plus or an A minus in Tampa or Atlanta or, you know, like an off the shelf kind of deal? Yeah. So what we've seen, uh, you know, we've had to change a little bit because we did, you know, we've owned properties in Jackson, Mississippi and Mobile, Alabama, which are more tertiary uh, with everything that's going on and everything that happened last year. We've deterred ourselves from going into super tertiary areas. So a lot of the deals that we that we like to buy are extremely difficult to find in major markets like a Jacksonville or a Charlotte or a Charleston, right? A lot of those deals have already been bought and sold. So the competition is, it used to be a lot greater because there was more properties and a lot more people willing to dive in. What I see now is that there's still competition for those properties, but our competition is not who we used to compete against. You know, where we used to go up against groups that did something similar. Now we're going up against groups that have never done this. So that leads me to raise my eyebrow and say, wait a second, this person's never done a deal like this. Do I really want to compete with him? Because my offer is 8 million, they're at 12. I don't think it's going to work at 12. It may, but we've seen a lot more new competition come into the market that either has a significantly cheaper set of capital or there's going to be some mistakes being made. And I hope it's the the previous, not not the latter. I don't want to see people make mistakes. But the competition that we see now is a different type of capital or a different type of financial engineering done to deals. So there's still competition no matter what. There was always competition, you know, we but now we're just seeing a different group of people that historically didn't buy this stuff come out of the woodwork. So it's not that it's not there. It's a different type of competition. Um, but the major difference, you know, a stable deal that's down the fairway, uh, the returns and what people want to see, it's not going to get us excited. So that's that's really the biggest thing for us. You know, we're not going to plan that space because 
it's not something that we get excited about. And, and we invest all our, our, a lot of our money into our deals, you know, typically 30 to 50% of the capital. So if we're not excited about it, you know, how can I get an investor to get excited about it? Wow. So you invest 30 to 50%. Yeah. We, wow. you know, we, one, one thing that, you know, listen, we're not, there's a hundred people doing a thousand people doing what we're doing. Uh, one thing that we do is that, you know, we buy deals because we want to own them. Uh, we offer those deals up to our investors but at the same time, if we go to buy a deal and we don't raise a penny, we're fully committed. We'll, we'll do the deal ourselves. We're doing deals that we want to do, not deals to generate fees and other things. So that's one of the distinguishing factors because, you know, we want to own real estate. You know, it's why I left the finance job. It's something that is my passion. I love real estate and I want to own real estate and I want to be an investor in real estate. Uh, I want to offer that to our investors as much as I can. I want to offer the opportunity to invest alongside of us and not with us. Not only are they investing alongside of us, but they're investing in us. But I don't want the only reason that someone invests to us is because of me. You know, th- that's great. And I appreciate that. But I want people to realize that not only are you investing in me and what we do, but you know that we're just as committed to the success of this project as you are because we're putting our money where our mouth is. So what is your typical deal structure with your investors? So our typical deal structure, uh, now, now this has changed over the years, but right now we're probably somewhere in a, a 6 to 8% preferred return, uh, typically a hurdle between 8 and 12, maybe 8 and 14, and then another hurdle over that. So it could be a 70-30 split over the first hurdle, and then maybe a 60-40 split over the second hurdle. And that's typically it. You know, It depends on the project. If it's a really heavy lift, we might put a third hurdle in there, but typically it's it's a very vanilla generic pref one hurdle two hurdle uh you know acquisition fee um asset management you know very vanilla no, none of these complex creative structures you know we like to keep it simple stupid because you know that's what we believe i understand and so what his with uh, and it sounds i mean it sounds super cool what you do it sounds like you really really are I guess, have rigor and discipline about what you buy. And so, you know, that's interesting. And I don't know if it's incredibly rare, but at least a little rare for sure. So what kind of IRRs have, have you been getting? Yeah, so the market has been our, our friend. Um, right. You know, we know that we could have done better on deals, but I would say, I think we just did this the other day, you know, our average IRR is probably somewhere in the high 20s, low 30s historically, give give or take, just depending on, you know, if you look at like a deal like where we might have made a, a, you know, a 50 IRR, but then we rolled that into a more stable deal. And now that deal is just cash flowing at eight, 9%. You know, it's going to drastically reduce that historical IRR, but on a per deal basis, we're definitely hovering around the high twenties, low thirties, low which is something that's been frustrating because it's very difficult to put that on paper in today's world, which has been, uh, you know, a relatively frustrating part for our stuff because we are disciplined, but now it's almost like, uh, are we too disciplined? Because it's tough to shake free the deals that we want to do. You know, and that's extraordinary, obviously. So are there not these kind of deals, you know, with the profile that you're describing in terms of a real problem, mismanagement, uh, high vacancy, you know, long time owner, right unit mix? Within, let's say, from Long Island, 100 to 150-ish miles, whatever, whether it be markets in Connecticut or Western New York, a Buffalo or what have you that have the same characteristics that like a Columbus, a Cincinnati or, you know, a mobile Alabama has? 
So really good question. Uh, The reason why we steered away from the Northeast in general is the population migration. Um, People are leaving the Northeast. Uh, The taxes are not fun up here. Uh, The landlord-tenant laws in New York are not the greatest. Now, Western New York is totally different than the five boroughs. But uh, they exist, but they're not in the markets where we want to see the job growth with the population growth. Now, that being said, you know, at the end of last year, maybe the middle of last year when everything was going on, you know, we specifically started to look at population growth more so than job growth because people could work from home now, right? So you don't need the jobs in the area to drum up population growth. So we're still going to wait them out equally, but at the same time, population growth is important. So I'm not saying that we're not going to find deals 150 miles away from us or 200 miles away from us or even further up in the Northeast. We've just steered away with, now we've looked at some opportunity zone developments and some deals, uh, some multifamily deals in Connecticut, but we've just seen some some population trends that deterred us from really diving in. Because you know when, when I first started, you know the, the little single family house I bought was for student rentals. Connecticut has like 7,000 colleges. So you know, it, it made logical sense. It's across the river or it's, you know, it's across the Long Island Sound. It's right around the corner. You know, let's go plan that space. But we've just seen that you know, real estate taxes have been higher and the properties have been smaller. So where it's been tougher to buy you know, a 250 unit or 300 unit, it's been smaller deals, 20s, 30s, stuff like that. So you know, we are evolving to see you know, are there opportunities now? But uh, for whatever reason, you know, that population growth has really driven our decision to invest, you know, further away in the southern markets, uh, you know, in you know, from North Carolina down. Let's call it. You know, going back a couple minutes, you're saying it's a different kinds of buyers. It's it's newer people in the market, and you're saying with different kinds of capital. So when you say different kinds of capital, what what did you mean by that term? Yeah. So I think so. We've been blessed to, or maybe not blessed, but we've been uh, lucky enough to have the the mom and pops all the way up to, you know, we have an institutional partner out of Boston that we work with. And, you know, we've seen the capital uh, requirements from each, right, where the institutional group has significantly higher thresholds and or more demanding operating agreements where the mom and pop investor does not put you through the ringer as far as hurdles and control decisions where they basically, you know, write you a check and they get their investor reports and, and, they're, and they're easier to deal with. I recommend people all the time, you know, start with your friends, family, mom and pops, because they're going to make your life a lot easier than audited financials or a compilation of it. You know, it's going to be cheaper, better and easier. Typically, a mom and pop investor, your neighbor, your coworker, everybody wants to make a 20, 30 percent return. But those people are probably very happy with six, seven, eight, 10, 12 return. So inevitably, if you can deliver a 15% return to someone and they're really happy with that, and I want to see a 20, you're going to be able to pay more than I will. And with a lot of people with real estate being that new fed, not new fed, but a lot more people diving into this world that we play in, you're seeing a lot more capital that has lower thresholds. So you're also seeing a massive migration out of New York because of what just happened. So a lot of the New York groups that were used to buying three and four caps are now playing in markets that we've been in for seven years. And you're you're looking at, wow, what, what are they doing here? They're used to three and 4% cap rates. We want six, seven, eight. You know, inevitably, they're going to be able to pay more than you. So you, you sort of, you hang in there. 
one thing that we've been working on for the last couple of months, and I'm hoping to have it wrapped up here, you know, by the end of the uh, you know, end of Q2, looking at historical transactions in markets that we're in, how many people were buying between 2011 and 2018? How many of those same buyers are transacting between 2018 and 2020? What I believe we're going to see and what I'm seeing is that a lot of those historical buyers are not buying right now. Either they're, they don't know where the market is, they're not confident in where the market's going, or they're not able to shake free the deals that they once were able to. And a lot of these newer buyers are people that maybe worked for these companies in the past. Now they're out on their own. Maybe they're a newer syndicator, a newer sponsor. And I just want to see what that looks like from my own perspective, because I want to be in the know on who our competition is like anything else. If I know I'm competing against these people, well, I have to find out you know, what they're doing, what they've historically done. So I can tell my investors that so my investors understand that we know what our competition is doing. If we want to play in this space and continue to play in this space, we either have to have lower expectations or we have to be more disciplined on fewer opportunities. Just understand that we're not going to be buying three or four deals a year. We might be buying one. So so that's something we're working on because I think it's going to be interesting to see if my hypothesis is correct. Um, And I do believe it is. But it, it's something that we've been working on and trying to, uh, you know, dig on to see if, if there's validity to it. That sounds so interesting. You, you you have to have either lower expectations or buy fewer deals. I mean, and, you know, I think it's such a human tendency. This is your business, right? It's your livelihood. And it's, I think it's a human tendency to want to be in action doing deals. So I could see where there's a real kind of a competing interests there. So do you... Do you have employees or is it just, how how is that structured? Yeah, so we did. We still have our full-time admin. Uh, She's amazing. Uh, You know, we had an acquisition. We had about three or four acquisitions guys in the office, guys and girls. And now our acquisitions guy just went out on his own. He just moved to Jacksonville. So I'm super excited for him to be out on his own, uh, doing his own thing. And uh, the other one acquisitions guy just realized last year that it wasn't for him. And then... uh, the other acquisitions girl that we have is still doing acquisitions for us, just not in the office every day. So right now, it's just myself, my partner, and our admin who are the real full-time people at the company. Uh, but we are actively looking for an asset manager, an acquisitions person, you know, and a financial. Uh, we actually might have filled the financial role, but you know, we are looking to really divide and conquer and really put people in roles for success. So right now it's just three of us. You know, I'm looking at resumes daily. That's been a big pet peeve of mine of just just really trying to we took 2020. I don't want to say we took it off. We really looked at internal systems and you know we want to be a, a machine coming out of this. So we're really looking to staff properly um and put people in the right seat. So just three of us right now, but we are actively uh on the hiring front to find you know some good team players. Would you would you ever consider uh, raising money to do a fund, or is it completely incongruent with how you operate because you're you're so disciplined about you know what you buy? So that we had a conversation with our attorney. Um, we were in the process of rolling out our first fund last year, and then Corona hit, uh, and our attorney's biggest concern was, you know, you guys are. It's got to be perfect. Now, now, when I say it's got to be perfect, I mean, we've bought some opportunistic deals that fit the criteria, but maybe not be in the market we like um, or want, you know, the perfect market, let's call it. Uh, our attorney's biggest fear was, 
you know, you guys like something very specific. You guys do a ton of transactions and you're good at it, but what happens if you don't find anything? And then there's mechanisms that you could put in funds to trigger certain events, but we've deterred away from it with the uncertainty of deal flow or the deals that we want to do. We have deal flow. It's just not what we want. So uh, it's something we spoke about. We've talked about potentially uh, having a fund where we, you know, we co-GP and or invest in other people's deals where we have more of a, of a say than a necessary, like an LP. Uh, so we're throwing around ideas out there, but right now we're probably going to stick to the one-offs and, and see how it plays itself out while we're still grooming our investors and letting them know that when opportunities come, we have to be ready to strike quickly. Uh, so it's something that is definitely on that to-do list and something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, we just, we, you know, we put pause, uh, you know, we put, pu- we pushed pause last year and uh, it's probably gone to the back burner for the immediate future. What do you think the biggest mistakes that you've made over the years? Um, probably not. It's a two part, probably giving people too much trust and not giving enough trust, uh, which counter, you know, contradicts each other. But sometimes you, you, you give people too much and they take advantage of it. And other times you got to give people more. Those are the two things that, uh, when I say I don't give people enough trust, sometimes I feel that instead of explaining it and teaching someone how to do it, it's just easier if I do it, which is a horrible attitude to have because you, you need to have good team players. So I would say that, you know, knowing that someone needs a little bit of handholding, not giving them enough responsibility and then vice versa, probably relying on people too much, giving people a little bit too much control. What do you think? Uh, what's your prognostication for multifamily in the next three to five years? So economically, the market is sound. Uh, there's so many triggers that support multifamily. I don't want to say I'm a glass half empty guy because I, I like to think that that's not the case, but I think that there could be a little bit of pain. I don't think the shoe has officially dropped from COVID. I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think that the economics behind multifamily are ridiculously strong. I think people need a place to live. I know that there could be high inflationary periods coming up, which is going to increase rents, increase appreciation and all that good stuff. But I do believe that there is another thing coming behind that, which is just increase of, you know, the cost of expenses and the cost of construction. And that stuff, I think, will outweigh some of these older complexes. So I think that the newer construction stuff is is really, really, really going to be strong. I think some of the older stuff, if people didn't budget properly or really know what it costs to operate a 1970s built deal, that's where I see pain where hopefully opportunistic we can be buying those properties shortly. But uh, overall, I'm, I'm very bullish on the multifamily space as a whole. I just think that, you, you know, cautiously optimistic. You got to go into your, your due diligence, eyes wide open, and really get into the financials because what, what we just saw is a completely unprecedented situation. So, you know, people might be paying rent, but were they paying it? Were they getting aid? Where are they working? What, what are they going to be doing going forward? You know, are their jobs going to be going away? Are they going to be, you know, doing something else? Those are the things that you got to keep an eye out on due diligence. But overall, I'm extremely bullish. I think it's a great space to be in. It's shown really to be really resilient, but uh, cautiously optimistic going into due diligence with a different set of glasses on than what we used to do. So I didn't get why you think new construction will be so strong. I didn't understand that. I I just think that, you know, a a newer build property is going to have less deferred maintenance and problems. So where, you know, a 1960s built deal with galvanized plumbing, you're going to have to replace it all. A 2015 built deal with PVC plumbing, that's not going to happen. 
So if you bought a 1960s deal at a low cap rate and you're not expecting to have major, you know, the property is 60 years old at this point, if you're not expecting to fix those problems, there will be problems on that. I think the newer construction stuff uh, inevitably will withstand any capital expenditures because it's newer. So the, 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 the newness of it makes it a little bit more resilient to major capital problems. That make more sense? A hundred percent. Yes, I understand that. And you and I have been talking for an hour and 10 minutes, John. So uh, uh, you've got a little girl there and, uh, you know, I, I have a responsibility or two and I cannot thank you enough for the time and I've enjoyed every second of it. I know, Roger, it was a, it was, I was a pleasure. Um, you know, I loved, I love coming on here. I appreciate the questions and, uh, you know, anyone I can provide value to, that's, uh, that's the name of the game. Uh, we will talk soon. Awesome. Be well. Bye. <laughs>